We are in Romans in our study, moving through verse by verse. And we are currently in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where we were last time. And I've entitled the message, The Heart of Biblical Christianity, and this is the second message on that theme here in these verses. Paul, in the opening verses of the book of Romans, really opens his heart to the people he's writing to in a wonderful way. And as he does that, he basically connects with those people that he has never seen that he is writing to. And I think he does that masterfully. But along the way, we find out immediately as we come to verse 16 that Paul, having come now to the heart of the book, tells us immediately that he is not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And in spite of all of the difficulties that he faced as a minister of the gospel, in spite of the fact that he faced death threats, and in spite of the fact that many times he was literally on the edge of death itself through either disease, mistreatment, spiritual warfare, persecution of man, whatever, none of these things were ever allowed to intimidate him and to stop him. It seems in looking at the life of Timothy that he occasionally had a problem with being timid. He occasionally had a problem of allowing himself to be, quote, ashamed of the gospel and to not open his mouth and to not minister at times when he should have. And Paul writes to him to that end to strengthen him. He tells him, don't let anybody despise your youth. Timothy had a problem with being as bold as he could be. And yet Timothy was a great man of God, so great that he was the closest disciple of the Apostle Paul. So I'm encouraged by Paul. I'm also encouraged by Timothy. I'm encouraged by Timothy to see the process that not everybody's going to be as bold, as forthright, and as powerful as Paul overnight. But also to see that the person he passed his ministry to when he left was a person that at times was ashamed of the gospel in the sense that he would become timid when he could have and should have been bold. In the process, as you see what comes forth from the Apostle Paul's life, what you see is that as he went out doing so much, as along the way certain individuals helped him and certain individuals left him after a while, you begin to realize that there is the kind of dynamic that pushes Christians to the point of doing nothing. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because he knows there are those that are. And though there are Christians who are sometimes doing nothing, it has to be said that there is no such thing as a Christianity with nothing to do. And I believe that is what is driving this passage in these statements, that there is so much for us to do. And God has given us all the tools to do it. I am a firm believer that if somebody has been given a job to do, if you will go the extra mile and effort and expense and give them the best tools, they will do the best job they can for you. If you give them so-so tools, if you try to scrimp on the tools, then the overall production, which is the most important thing, will be hindered by a much smaller thing, which is simply the cost of tools. I look at what God has done for us in the Christian life, and I realize at a very high cost, the death of His Son on the cross, He has, and at the death of many of His saints, He has placed in our hands the finest of tools. He has given us the complete Word. He has given us the fullness of His Holy Spirit. We have everything necessary to do the finest job, if I could put in those terms, for the Lord. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He knew the power was there to get the job done and to meet the desperate need of mankind. So we come to the heart of the book. And in looking at this, I told you that to understand and to positively respond to the truths that are here is to have one's time and eternity forever changed. And that is absolutely true. And in looking at this, I've broken it down into four different categories, and that is this. The gospel offers salvation. The gospel brings power. The gospel is embraced by faith. And the gospel reveals righteousness. Last time, we talked about the very first thing here, that the gospel offers salvation, and how the man is rescued from sin. 
Man is rescued from sin, if I could just pick up from there, to be restored to communion with God. And think of what that means. Think of what that means if you, maybe this will help you, if you think of the average life today. The average person wakes up in the morning, goes through their routine, gets on the road, goes to their job, and goes through their routine on their job, then gets back on the road and comes home and goes through their routine at home, and then finishes off their evening routine by getting into bed, and then the routine is done for the day. So many times that is done without communion with God. Thus, after years and years, you look back and you see, what an empty life. Is that all there is to life, is the routine. But you see, if you compare that with man before the fall, where you have Adam going about the duties God gave him to basically rule the earth, tend the garden, and do it all with communion with God, you see this richness God had planned for us from the very beginning. To be restored to that kind of communion is to take all the dullness out of any routine you might be in. I can freely admit to you, if I've, I have had some of the most boring jobs a human being could ever have in life. I had one job where I ground pots all day long for a living. I ground out the, the inside of these aluminum pots, these little things that were used in German restaurants to serve soup in. And all I did all day long was grind them out and polish the inside. One pot after the next. And nothing is more boring than that. But I'll tell you, I had some of the greatest times of fellowship with God with my earplugs on and my mask down and that grinding noise that was so loud because in, in the middle of all that noise and seemingly infinitely mundane experience, there was this fellowship with God going on in the middle of it. We are saved and offered salvation to come back into the communion with God that man had before the fall. And that is a tremendous thing. When you understand it in terms like that, you want to tell people the gospel. You want to not be ashamed because you know that the gospel can turn their life around and change it overnight if nothing else ever changed in their life. I think of Joe Ramirez, pastor of our church in Petroson, the outreach in Petroson, Romania, and how Joe was working as a baker. And he used to come to the six o'clock morning prayer meeting that we used to have every day when we first started the church. And he'd come in and he'd have flour all over him. He'd have dough all over him. Funny how God got these bakers. Jill, who's in France, used to come in and he had flour all over him. It was kind of a baker's delight thing. And nothing could be more mundane to both of them. They freely admitted it. But little did they know that in that time of mundane fellowship, as they fellowshiped with God with the mundane job, God was preparing them. Now they're both out in the uttermost parts of the earth doing the work of the ministry. Into the mundane existence comes communion with God and it changes everything. Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote, he said, We are not saved, man is not saved, not truly restored, until the communion with God is restored. He said, and we are back again in fellowship with God. Then an individual has the most essential part of salvation. And he went on to say that that's the point here with Paul. The point is worth making now at the beginning of the book because as we go through the book of Romans, Paul's going to talk so much about grace and forgiveness and you get so much technical salvation data. But behind it all, ever and always, is that this has all been done to a personal end, not just a positional end, to bring man back to communion with God, to specifically bring you to communion with God. And that's the most important essential thing. The gospel can take the worst sinner, when it's responded to, can introduce he or she into, this is so amazing, immediate fellowship with God. Think of it. Immediate fellowship with God. To be the worst of sinners, if you let your mind run for just a moment, think of how you are the worst of sinners. Unless you're blinded by your own pride. To be the worst of sinners. Think of where that takes you as a human being. Think of what that does to your mind. Think of what that does to all natural, normal sensitivity. Think of how it completely walls you off from everybody around you, in a sense, but most specifically God. 
But then think of the fact that the gospel can come into that kind of darkness. And if you simply respond to it, respond to him, you are immediately hoisted, taken, translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and immediately introduced to warm, loving, forgiving, cleansing fellowship with God in a moment of time. In a moment of time. It happens instantly. When you truly connect with God, there's a moment in time when it happens instantly. In uh, John chapter 17, can you turn there in your Bible? Jesus is addressing this issue in prayer. John 17, 2. I love this passage. Jesus intercedes for us so wonderfully. And he says, as you have given him authority over all flesh, the son of man, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may, what does it say? Know you. I thank God that my Christianity is not religion. It's relationship with him that I know him. I grew up in my life and I went to every different kind of church and they all had religion. But what I did not see in those churches was a sparkle in the eyes, a light in the eyes, because the life wasn't there. The relationship wasn't there. Then there came a point in my life where I began to meet people and every one of them that was truly born again, whether they were super spiritual or so-so spiritual, but they all had it. They all had this light in their eyes, this light in their life. It comes to you the moment you connect with Christ. It's there. It's the life of God coming into your soul. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you. Do you know him? Do you know him in that way today? That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What a tremendous thing it is in a moment of time to come out of the darkness and into the light, especially if you've been searching down other avenues. To me, the worst search in all the world, the most frustrating, is not searching for a good church. That's frustrating. That's very frustrating. But it's searching for the true and living God and going down one dead-end street after the next. Sometimes only waking up to the reality that you're on a dead end when a crisis hits your life and you're left totally unable to handle it with all the work you've done and this thing you've been following after, trying to climb the ladder to a relationship with God. Yet from God's side, how wonderful it is when in a moment of time with an absolute, utter, free gift, you bypass all that climbing, all that effort, all that frustration, and suddenly you come into the rest of God and the search is over. The search is over in a moment of time. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent because you give eternal life to them. You might be thinking right now, well, hold it. Could you just go back to that chief of sinners thing? That little journey in my mind a minute ago really, really got me aware again of the fact of how far away from God I am. Are you in that place right now? Are you thinking, well, what do I have to do to get his attention? I mean, I'm there now. I can barely stand the guilt I feel in my heart. Are you there now? For once in your life, are you suddenly sensitive and you don't even know why to all the sin you've committed? You may be wondering, yes, yes, I am. What do I have to do to get God's attention right now? I want to make that connection. How do you go from being so far plunged into the darkness to so connecting with God that you're simply taken right out into the light. How do you do that? How do you, hello, God, I'm out here way out in darkness. I'm so far from God. How do I get his attention from way out here in never, never darkness? The answer is this, you don't. The answer is the reason you're even thinking like this is because he has gotten your attention. You already have his attention. The Bible says that every human being effectively has his undivided attention. Second Peter 3.9 says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, patient with you, not wanting that anyone should perish, but that everyone would come to repentance. He's got his eye on you. You've got his attention. It's up to you now. He's waiting. If you will respond to him, you don't have to do one thing to get his attention. He does everything to get your attention. The other day I was in a restaurant 
Pastor Greg, Laurie, and I were having lunch, and this lady came up to wait on us, and she she said, Oh, I've been wanting to talk to you for so long. And she said, It was, there it was, and you were preaching on the armor of God, and you said, You're either fighting against God or God is fighting with you and for you. Which is it? And she said, I, there in my heart, I said, God, I don't want to fight you any longer. And I became born again instantly. She's shouting this in the restaurant. I turned to Greg and I said, Ha ha, finally I get one when you get so many. He said, well, just don't forget, buddy boy, who got you? With that little cartoon booklet that I wrote when I was 17 years old, and you came to Christ, and so you were able to bring her. And it was just a wonderful moment of fellowship in the kingdom of God. See, because Greg led me to Christ through his little track that he wrote, to see this other person. And she was just born again, listening like right now to the word of God. Her whole life changed. The gospel offers salvation. Let's go on to the next main thought here in our outline, and that is that the gospel brings power. The gospel brings power. I want to offer some questions here. When you look at all the trouble that we have around us on every side, you might ask, where is the work of God in the world today through the gospel? Where is it? How do we see it? We see it in this way that you may be looking for in the wrong places. You might be looking for it in a better president. No, I don't know why, but you might be. You might be, you know, looking for it in a lot of places. Maybe you got involved in some moral causes to clean up the morality of America and it didn't work. That's because the only answer is to see the heart converted, not to take things from the hands of sinners. That only aggravates them. They'll give them up when they know Christ and willingly, but they will fight giving them up tooth and nail if you try to take them away from them and stop them from sinning when they're not converted. And you may be wondering, well, where is the work of God in the middle of all this? Well, the answer is it's in, in the hearts of individuals. It's the power of God, Paul says, unto salvation. Not the power of God to changing governments. The power of God unto salvation in the lives of individuals. Not the power of God to stop wars. The power of God unto changing individuals' lives. You watch the news and you say, where is God in all of this? He is in the midst of it, saving and transforming and setting free one by one every person that will come to Him. You know, people often say when you are talking to them about the Lord, they'll say something like, well, you know, here you're talking to me and I don't really believe. I don't see God working anywhere. But if Jesus appeared to me right now, I'd believe. You know that one? Did you ever say that one? I said that one many times. If Jesus just showed up right now, I'd believe. Well, you know something? What God is saying is not, I'm going to show up right now so you can believe. He's saying, why don't you look at that life over that I've touched? And why don't you look at that one over there that I've touched? And look at this one I've touched and that one I've touched. And look at your best friend who suddenly is so different than they ever were. Or look at your husband who suddenly, though you know him to have been the worst of sinners, is suddenly beginning to become something you never dreamed you can be, a loving, sensitive man. Or look at this woman that was so caught up in the scene women are in today. And look how different she is. You see, God is working in the world today and He's doing it in individuals through the gospel. You look at that and you have to say, well then, why do we sometimes become ashamed of the gospel? I think that we sometimes become ashamed of the gospel because we become blinded to the power of it. Blinded to the power of it because we focus on our own weaknesses instead of focus on the power of the gospel and what it is doing. We get so focused on the weaknesses in our own lives that we tend to forget the existing right now major changes that have already happened. We tend to get eclipsed, as it were, in our vision of what God's already done. And of course, the devil is very, very hard at work to do that, to convince you of that. It doesn't take a big object to eclipse something even bigger, does it? You know the old thing, if you hold up a dime in front of the sun, it, put it up next to your eye, you can't see the sun. All you can see is that little dime, and it darkens everything. You hold it right up to your eye, that's all it takes. And that's because that's the way it is. A little thing brought up so close to your vision eclipses a great and bright thing, you want to know why sometimes we're ashamed of the gospel? Because we're so hung up on some weakness in our life that we're no longer rejoicing and thanking God for the many other great things He's done. And as a result, the devil says, yeah, he hasn't done a thing. 
Look again at this one area. And then we go out and we're ashamed to to testify because we think I'm not perfect. We forget the whole story and good news of the gospel is he saves people like us who will never be perfect until we get to heaven and we're made perfect by his transforming power. And yet who can now be covered with the blood of Christ to be made perfect in the eyes of God. Have you been ashamed of the gospel? Have you been focusing on your own weaknesses Don't you know that Jesus died for those weaknesses? Don't you know that He will work on those things one by one? And don't you know that that's just a tool of the devil to get you to look at yourself instead of Him? Because when you look at Him, you can't help but see again the grace of God in Christ. I think that's why we're sometimes ashamed of the gospel. How extensive is the power? Paul says it is the power of God to salvation. How extensive is that power? I want you to think of this in terms of you leaving here and going out to share. That's what I want you to think of. I'm going to leave this church. What am I going to do about not being ashamed of the gospel? Well, let's address this issue. How extensive is the power when you go out to share the gospel? What's been done to pave the way ahead of you? It's mind-boggling. Can you turn in your Bible to Romans 8.28? How extensive is the power behind the gospel? Absolutely mind-boggling. Paul, and we will look at this in detail, when he gets to the mountaintop of where he's going with everything in Romans chapter 8, he says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose, for, look at this list now, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. How extensive is the power behind the gospel as you go out to share it? It is so extensive that to begin with, before you ever open your mouth, to speak to that individual in front of you, there has been all of this foreknowledge that's gone into it in eternity past. You go back as far into eternity as you can, which you can't, and you just go way on back there, and you have the foreknowledge of God which means to foreknow, to set his love upon, to examine, to think through. It's all of these things we'll look at in detail, but it's God in eternity past foreknowing that individual, knowing all every single thing about them, and then add into that in eternity past predestination. You might be thinking, ooh, the predestination word. Ooh, What's he going to say about that? That may be a determining factor of staying or leaving this fellowship. Predestination is behind the whole thing. That is to mark out beforehand. That's to do with the horizon and to mark it out beforehand. It's all of God's thought and activity and decree and purpose channeled down toward a life in eternity past before you ever open your mouth to talk to that human being. Then there is the calling of God. The calling of God. This is something we'll look at in detail. Don't want to give it all away here, but it has to do with God coming in by His Holy Spirit and calling a person. It has to do with God using you to open your mouth. How shall they hear except a preacher be sent? You are all preachers. You are all lay ministers. It isn't just somebody professional up in a pulpit. You are all preachers of the gospel. Every one of you, if you know Christ, how shall they hear except the word go out and a preacher be sent? This call comes to human beings through their ears, through your lips, to their ears, as the Holy Spirit works on them, factoring in foreknowledge and predestination from eternity past. Right now in time, as the Holy Spirit begins to beckon and to call to them, and as He's even calling them into the kingdom, out of the darkness into light through you, Nothing is more noble than that. Nothing is more thrilling than that. To be, yes, knowledgeable of your own sin, and at the same time, able to be maybe telling the truth to someone who's never heard it. We have a brother sitting in church right now. He went 50 years in his life, and no one ever told him even once the gospel of Jesus Christ. 50 years. He was in the military. All military has chaplains. 
The chaplains never told him, talked about everything else, but 50 years, no one told him the gospel. Have you ever gone out and been with someone and you feel God is at work and there's an opportunity to share and then you're, you, the way you get out of it is you say to yourself, oh, this America, we've got all this radio station and this and books and tapes. I'm sure they've heard it. I'll only mess it up. I better keep quiet and safeguard the whole thing. And you walk away, you don't share. I wonder how many times that happened to this individual. 50 years of his life, no one told him the gospel once. And then when someone told him, he immediately, wholeheartedly gave his life to Jesus Christ. You know what he does now as a lay person? He's not a professional. He just goes around and anybody that will listen to him, especially if he gets his face in front of a chaplain in the military, and he tells them the gospel of Jesus Christ. He asks that question, has anyone ever told you of the love of God in Christ? And God has used him over and over and over and over to tell people who've never heard before. Have you ever had that blessed opportunity and privilege? Do you know that wonderful feeling when someone says, no one ever told me until now. Thank you so much for telling me. The call of God. There's so much that goes into it. And then there's the justification that comes. What's the extent of this power behind the gospel? All this foreknowledge, predestination, this calling that God pours toward a person's life. And then if you respond, what you get is immediate justification, which is a lifetime of sin deleted, erased, Permanently, You cannot use recovery on it. You know, with computers nowadays, you can delete something off of your hard drive, throw away some document, but if you have the right stuff, you can come back and recover it again. You know, you get yourself Norton Utilities or something, you come in and bring it back. Well, now you can buy utilities that called burn it or, you know, something, annihilate it, whatever. And those are designed to remove things from your computer's hard drive once and for all and forever. They're not possible to recover them. Justification takes an entire lifetime pileup of sin and it deletes it once and for all and forever. Your account before God is clean, paid in full. It's a tremendous thing. You go forth offering that to a person. They can have that in a moment in time. And so we go from eternity past into time, the calling, the justification given as a free gift. Then God's mapped out this whole thing for the future. He so set his love on a person in eternity past. He so marked out their horizon as it related to them hearing the gospel, responding or not. And those that do respond, he then went on to map out an entire plan for you that stretches not just for your first day in heaven, not just for your first glimpse of Jesus, not just for your first song with the multitudes that sounds like the rushing roar of many waters, but eternity upon eternity upon eternity upon eternity. He has thought every detail through for every child of God that will ever trust in Christ. What is the extent of the power that's gone into the gospel as you go out to share it? All of this, all of this for every single person. How can we be ashamed to share it? It sets in motion all that is wrapped up in God's plan for His elect. Let's ask another question. What does Paul mean the power of God comes through the gospel? What does he mean? I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. What does he mean the power comes through the gospel? He means the power is in the gospel itself. Notice Romans 1.16, he says, For it is the power of God unto salvation. Let me read it again and stop right where I stop. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power. Stop. It is the power. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power. As you go out tomorrow, as you go out tonight, go out with this ringing in your head. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power. It is the power. Thus, you open your mouth and you share. And not only is there all of this planning and foreknowledge and predestination and future planning and glory, there's power in it right now as you just send it forth. It goes forth with its own power. Turn in your Bible, could you, to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 8. Parable of the Sower. 
I love to stop and watch Jesus teach and think about what he says. That's why you ladies are so blessed coming out on Tuesdays to hear the gospel of Matthew and to study it in your homework. It says here in Luke 8, 4, when a great multitude had gathered and they had come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable and he said, a sower went out to sow his seed. Now the way Jesus worked, he always chose what was at hand. He wanted to make his point really clear to those that really wanted to know. So I imagine as they're all gathered together, there's a guy over on the side a little way off, and he's sowing seed in a field. And as they're all gathered there, he said, now a sower went out to sow. And they're just all of a sudden watching him. And he no doubt would just have played off everything that sower was doing. It was perfect opportunity. He always did stuff like that. He took events and turned them into messages, using the event as a focal point. Now a sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. Others fell on good ground, but and sprang up and yielded a crop a hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is Jesus saying, It's time for salvation for you right now if you want it. He would say that to you right now, tonight. Do you have ears to hear all these things? Why do you feel what you're feeling inside right now? It's God. Do not push the God of heaven and all of universe, your Creator, away when He comes to you. Do you have ears to hear? Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And He goes on to give the interpretation in verse 11. He said, Now the parable is this. The seed is the Word of God. Those by the wayside are those who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the Word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. In other words, these are those who are simply so hard that it's very easy for the devil to just distract them and basically flush away what was brought to them as God is calling them. But then there is the ones on the rock. They are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And he says, these have no root. For a little while they endure, in a time of temptation they fall away. When we were in Israel, and if you go with us and we go to the shepherd's field or someplace like it, I remember imagining the shepherd's fields in my mind where the angels appeared and gave the announcement of the birth of Jesus. And what I saw was effectively something like a golf course, rolling hills, manicured, you know, mowed very nicely. I mean, after all, this is Bethlehem. These are shepherd's fields. This is where the angels announced it all. Surely God sent a, a team of landscapers in. I mean, this has got to be a dream scene. And we went to Bethlehem, and uh, it's all rocky. And right in that time when we were there in March, the rain had come, and the grass had shot up, and wildflowers were everywhere. And as we got out there, Pastor Chuck said, Now, please look around you and notice. See all this beautiful grass and then the rocks in between? He said, the grass is growing on soil that's about one inch thick. And that's why you see the stone showing in so many places. What you really see here, he said, will be gone within a month or so. Because there's nowhere for the roots to go. When they're trying to go down, they hit rock. This will only endure for a while, and then it will all be gone. That's the picture right here. The seed hits those hearts that are a little soft, but not really. These are the people that respond a little while. These are the people that often respond. Luke records here, as Jesus said, receive the word with joy in verse 13. Sometimes they're so joyful, they seem to put the rest of us to shame. They make the rest of us feel like we are completely uninspired and impassioned. And they've got so much zeal, but they only go for a little while. And in a time of difficulty, they, they're gone. They are not truly saved. They simply got on the bandwagon. They got excited about maybe doing something about their guilty conscience. They didn't connect with the Lord. Then in verse 14, there are those. He says, Now the ones that fell among thorns are those that when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of life and bring forth no fruit to, what does it say? 
maturity. They don't go forward. They don't manifest real fruit. Jesus said, you will know a tree by its fruit. Well, I don't want to judge them. Well, don't. Open the Bible. See what it says. Look at their life. Is there any fruit there? Or they say, don't judge me. I responded to that appeal. I had the ears to hear. Yes, but I see no evidence in your life of any fruit whatsoever of loving God. What I see is a life dominated by, surrendered to, and encroached upon by the cares of this life, which is the thorns. This is not a saved person. The seed falls on the wayside, the rock, and the thorns, and there is no salvation there. Verse 15, but the ones that fell on, what is it called? Good ground. Whole different kind of ground. Are those who having heard the word with a noble and a good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. And Matthew adds, they bear fruit some hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. There's all different kinds of Christians. But the issue of real salvation is fruit. It may be different in your life than mine. But the issue is there's life there. Where there's life, there's fruit. Now, what causes that? The seed. So that you go forth and you sow the seed and you say, well, what, how am I going to handle the rocky ground? That isn't your problem. How am I going to handle the wayside? That isn't your problem. And how do I find the good ground? Do I get one of these detectors? Is there a good ground detector I can find? You know, like, you know, some of you are into finding coins and things at the beach with those deals that you walk around looking for lost valuables. I saw you there, I know. Does God also, does He bundle with the Bible a sensor where I can find good ground? I don't want to waste my time with the wayside and the, you know, the shallow soil. No. You just go along and sow. And when the seed hits good ground, you may be gone. And life will come forth because the power to bring forth life, the power to bring forth fruit, the power to bring forth some even to a hundredfold is in the seed. The power is in the seed. It's not in you, it's in the seed. So you go out and you're not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because of everything we talked about in God, eternity, past, present, and future, but also because the power is in the seed. And that is so critical to realize because another one of our excuses is, well, I'm not a good speaker. I'm not a good communicator. I'm helper. I help, that's what I do. So I won't mess this up because helpers shouldn't be witnessing. They don't speak well and, uh, you know, I better not talk. Mike McIntosh tells the story of how he was working in a hospital, just counseling and sharing one day and working with the police department and all of that. I was a chaplain and he got in there and they brought in an individual and, and the individual was there in, in really rough condition and uh, it was in intensive care. God was telling them, talk to this person about Christ. He's thinking, well, I'll work my... This is an evangelist guy. I mean, Mike McIntosh is a walking... He sneezes, people get saved. You know what I mean? I've been with him. I've seen it. And there he was. And he just went through this thing in his mind. And he clammed up. And then the person died right in front of him. And he had not told them. And he just went through so much turmoil in his heart because he had the opportunity and he didn't take it. You see... When you're standing there and you're saying, well, someone else will come along. Well, someone else will tell them. Well, someone else. No, don't you get it? Maybe you have been sent to them. And all you need to do is understand, you don't have to make it so clever. You don't have to say, now, what did Billy Graham say? Now, what's that posture he uses? Now, how does he get that tone of voice? Now, how does he wave his hand? The Bible says, you know, how does he do that again now? You know, and you come up and you just mess it all up. The Bible says, yeah, um, no. Excuse me, let me try that again. So you try to be someone else. You just open your heart and share. There's nothing so winsome and enchanting as just a genuine person who cares. It's in the eyes. People see it. It's the window to the soul. The power is in the seed. They ask you questions. I don't know the answer to that question, but I do know this. He loves you. And what about, you know, is there life on Mars? Is it true? Who cares? You know, He loves you. Did man really come from an ape? You may have acted like one. He still loves you. You know, you should just bypass it all. Power is in the seed. I thank God for that. We sow the seed. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power 
The gospel offers salvation. The gospel brings the power. And it's for anybody that will believe. So third main thought. It happens by simple faith. Simple faith. You know what simple faith is? It has to do with believing. Now, in our modern usage of the term believe, we tend to think of it as a, a mental acceptance of a proposition or as a statement that it's a true fact. But in biblical usage, it's much more than that. One writer summed it up this way. This is what simple faith is. True faith. Because it is inspired by God, because it's even a gift from God. It contains all of these elements. True faith, he says, will contain everything that the mind can bring of assent. Everything that the heart can bring of confidence and trust and everything that the will can bring of obedience. I love this. Here's a summary. True faith is the going out of the whole soul and spirit of a man toward God, the God who communicates that very faith to us as the gift of His grace. True faith is a gift from God. Salvation is a gift of God by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift from God. Simple faith is profound as well because it has the divine touch to it. God looks at the willing heart. He's even influenced the willing heart, and He imparts the faith. Simple faith in what? In Jesus Christ. Don't make any mistake about this. You can't afford to. You put your faith in Christ alone, and then you can come to know you're saved. When, let me ask you a question, how much time have you put into getting ready to die? How much time did you put into buying your house? How much time did you put into getting the color of hair you have now? How much time <laughs> do you put into things in life? Or in getting the hair you have now? How much time have you put into getting ready to die? Getting ready to die involves putting your faith in Christ. It involves putting your faith in the right place so you can know for sure that it's all taken care of. And then you don't have to think about it anymore. One pastor I know shared this story of being on an airplane and he got in a discussion with this lady. She found out he was a minister and told him that, uh, you know, she had grown up in the Catholic Church and they were having a discussion. He says, well, you know, the Catholic Church has changed a lot, hasn't it? She said, oh, yes. Oh, my, yes. And he said, well, you know, that happens. That's the way things are. And she said, but I don't like it. He said, well, what do you mean? She said, I'm devoted. I don't like the changes. He said, well, what do you mean specifically? She said, I liked it better when I didn't understand it. She said, you know, before they changed the Mass from Latin to English, I liked it better when I couldn't understand it, when I just sat there and the whole thing was in Latin. Couldn't understand a word. He said, what, what do you mean by that? I mean, how could you ever understand the principles of God's Word if it was in a language you couldn't understand? Wouldn't you rejoice that they changed it? She said, no, I liked it better when I didn't understand it. Then I could just meditate. He said, on what? She said, on whatever. On whatever. It made me feel good. You see with that picture? That's the picture of a woman... He said, are you going to heaven? She said, her response was, I go to church. Probing deeper, what are you doing in church? Well, I sit and meditate. I don't want to hear what they say. I liked it better when I couldn't understand what they said. Are you going to heaven? I'll go to church. The answer is, I'm going to heaven because I go to church indirectly. That's the answer. The problem is, nobody goes to heaven because they go to church. People go to heaven, no matter what church you might be in, you go to heaven because you put your faith in the right place. She assumed she was going to heaven because she went to church. She assumed that her mindless meditation, which is a conundrum, isn't it? Mindless meditation. She assumed that that was going to take her to heaven, but she only could assume it. That's as far as she could go. You know that in the difficulties of her life, that assumption was greatly challenged. Listen, you can know you're going to heaven, not assume it. You can know by placing your faith in Christ. And when you're truly born again, God immediately goes about to testify to your heart by His Spirit. You are His child. You can know where you're going when you die. No ifs, no questions. And when things get really rough, you need to know. Because it affects everything in your life. 
In 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul writes, he says, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I received. And that is exactly what we've been talking about tonight. I delivered to you what I have received. Going out and delivering it to others. He said how Christ died for our sin according to the Scripture, and that He was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scripture. And then he tells us in Romans 10.9, that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, who died and rose again for you, if you will believe, not with your head, but with your heart, he says, that God raised him from the dead for your sins, you will be saved. That's the promise of God. He says, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It's in Romans 10.10. 10. In verse 11 he says, for the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Don't live with an assumption Your assumption may be wrong. Live with the confidence that you've put your faith in Him and you know you're going to heaven when you die. You know because you've believed upon Him. In John 6.37, Jesus said it so well. He said, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. On the contrary, he will be the keeping factor of your life. You will find yourself a Christian years after because he kept you. You will make the commitment up front. You'll say, Lord, I give you my life. That's my commitment. Here I am. I need your free gift of salvation and he will keep you. He will never drive you away and you can know. And if you don't know, how dare you go to sleep tonight living in an assumption? How dare you go to sleep tonight? banking on the fact you'll wake up tomorrow will be as always. When you're not even ready to face eternity and it may be right around the corner for you, you can't live like that because you're not ready to die. See, if anybody puts their faith in Christ alone, they can have the confidence they're going to heaven. And finally, the last thing here in our outline is that the gospel reveals righteousness. If you look at Romans 1.17, he says... I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation. And he says, for the Jew first, also the Greek. That's because the Messiah was promised to the Jews first. They had the promise. When they rejected, God sent out the gospel to the Gentiles. You know what's so tremendous about that? What's so tremendous about it is here is a nation wholesale. They reject their Messiah, their Savior. God takes the greatest rejecter to take it to the Gentiles. That is so tremendous to me. His name is Paul. His name, when he rejected, was Saul. God says, I'll take the gospel to the Gentiles and I'll use the greatest rejecter to deliver the goods. And so he converts him on the Damascus Road. You know what that tells me? It tells me I serve a God who is able, even right down through the middle of man's frailties, to accomplish his purposes and sometimes to use even the most unlikely vessel. It's His power. And from there, the gospel goes out from faith to faith, he says. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just will live by faith. So what happens is you take the gospel and you share it. It hits good ground, it comes alive, and that person shares it. And on and on and on it goes. Donald Barnhouse put it like this. He says, There is no man in this world who who was ever saved apart from the instrumentality of another believer who first set forth the gospel. If you say you were saved in the loneliness of your own room, I answer, the bud bloomed when you were alone, but that the seed was planted and watered by men. Someone gave the money by faith to print the track or to print the Bible that you read. Faith came to your heart through the intermediary of the person that gave you the gospel. It came into your heart. And that's the way it happens. From faith to faith, as it is written, the just will live by faith. And brethren, that is why all of our efforts count. Because it comes through you sharing. When I was in London not long ago, I met one of the most zealous guys I've ever seen. He stands in the underground every day and he just tells anyone that will listen about Christ. I said, how did you get saved? He said, well, let me tell you, it was incredible. It was one of those days I was on my way to Mass 
And I, he said, I'm a photographer and I wasn't in the mood. So I got on the train to go to the seaside and take pictures. He said, and the strangest thing happened to me. Nobody was anywhere near me. And I was sitting there on the train and all of a sudden, the power of God came upon me and I was so convicted for my sin that I had to turn to God and pray with all my heart on the spot for Him to forgive me and to give me that new life in Christ. And he said, and I did that, and the power and the love of God just flooded my soul, and I've just been on fire ever since. He said, and I said, no one was around. He said, nobody was around at all. Incredible. And I said, but, what about before all that? He said, oh, there this man in my life, such a friend, always telling me things of the love of Christ. He said, and I couldn't wait to run and tell him. Because he said, as I was feeling the weight of my sin, I was hearing his words echoing in my mind. And those words drove me to that prayer, though no one was around. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And that is why we cannot be ashamed of the gospel. We must not be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power to salvation. Let's go and let's share it with anyone that will listen. Shall we pray? Father, thank you. It's all of grace and it's all of you. Thank you, Lord, that we can go forth and share the words of eternal life. Forgive us, Lord, for getting so preoccupied with ourselves that we are ashamed of the gospel and we don't share it. Thank you, Lord, for all those times when We've sensed a boldness we knew was from you. Thank you, Lord, for those times we've been able to share and people have been touched and lives have been changed and souls saved. Oh, Lord, may this increase. May those times when we know we should share and reach out and love and we don't, may those times decrease. And may we know that that which makes the difference is the movement of your power and your love upon us. And bring to our remembrance, Lord, the power that is in the gospel. And we pray, Father, in the name of Jesus, that you will use us. Use us, Lord, right now at this time in our lives. For your glory, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.